say, Connie, and I'm nine years old. Sometimes I just get ideas in my head. They just, like, shoot straight in there. And then I just can't help it but write them out on a comic. Sometimes I feel like I'm a jaguar, or sometimes I feel like I'm something else that I am. And sometimes I hallucinate things that are around me. If I had a magic wand, tomorrow would look like my room would be a giant obstacle course. You just think anything could happen. Dear son. Daughter. Son. Dear brothers. Nephew, I'm telling you this in your 15th year. I'm telling you this in your 15th year. Welcome to HBO's Between the World and Me podcast. I'm your host, Susan Kelechi Watson. I'm an executive producer and actor in the HBO special event based on Ta-Nehisi Coates' 2015 best-selling book and adapted from the Apollo Theater's 2018 theatrical event of the same name, which was conceived and directed by Camila Forbes. In this four-part series, we'll dive deep into key moments from the film, We'll hear conversations from the film's cast and creators, as well as essential commentary from thought leaders like Adrienne Marie Brown, Kimberly Nicole Foster, and Sonia Renee Taylor. We'll also hear from real parents and their children who share what this work means to them. This is episode one, The Dream. Let's dive in with a conversation from ta Coates and Camila Forbes. So there's a conversation that only the two of us can have in this moment. So let's have that conversation. Okay. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, so, okay, here's a question. Now, we, we, we've talked about how we've met before, um, but why do you think we met? Why? Why? Wow. Well, it's, 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 it's clear that we met uh, so that I could have uh, a son. Uh, That's and- right. Wow. That's pretty clear. That's Look, why we met. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Cam. Um, that, that's that's for those you know who don't know. Um, Kenyatta, uh, who is my wife, and Camila have been friends. I don't want to date you, but let's just say seventh grade. It's been a long time. It's been a second. It's been a second, and um, both Kenyatta and Camila came to Howard, um, and I saw Kenyatta out on the yard one day. And I knew Camila, but I didn't know Kenyatta. And um, I, you know, asked uh, in in the uh, argo or the slang of the time, who was this um, fetching young lady who who she was with? (laughs) (laughs) And and the rest is history. So that's why. That's clearly why. I mean, that's the most significant thing. Because if that doesn't happen, there's no between the world and me. There's no, we're not sitting here talking right now. There's no Samari. There's no book. There's no nothing. You're welcome. That's all I got to say. I feel like we've like been always creatively collaborating in and around and with like each other. Because when I pulled out that playbill from one of the plays that we did at Howard, um, Rhyme Deferred, you wrote the you wrote the thing. You wrote the foreword. It was very angry. It was a very angry forward about hip hop theater and hip hop. You were very angry at hip hop at that moment. But Cam, that was that was the real talk. I mean, that was the reason like... um. Certainly other people had asked about uh, adapting Between the World and Me for the stage. And I was like, absolutely not. 
Yeah. Um, and part of the no is it's very like I, I'm I'm a very. I it's weird. Like I I I see in words. I don't necessarily see in pictures, or images. Mm-hmm. And so I really couldn't see how between the world and me, um, could be you know uh, staged. And frankly, I couldn't really see how it actually could even, you know, be made for for television, you know. Um, But uh, sometimes, and I think this is very rare, very, very rare, because I don't know anybody else like this. Um, Sometimes you know people and you just trust them. It doesn't really matter that you can't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's not true. I have it with my editors. With my editors, another part, I guess. So, to some extent, you want that with all, you know, your creative partners because sometimes they tell you to do something, and you're like, mm-hmm. I really don't see how this works, but okay. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's the similar thing, you know. And you need people like that because if it's only what you see, you know what I mean, it's going to be limited. Well, you know, and that's that. That's that is creative collaboration. I mean, trust is like the cornerstone of it all. I don't. You know, it's funny because when I think about this, and it's such a scary thing. You know, I think coming from theater, how sacred you take the words of the writer, and like translating it in a different form. Um, is can be is so scary, honestly, because you know writers get like y'all get real like er, you know. Yeah, but not me, not me. I know that does happen. That does happen. But I, I felt like so because of the way between the world and me was received. By which I mean the sheer number of people who read it and the things they read into it. Um, it was a very painful but necessary lesson about what you own and what you don't. Yeah, and it it really I was made intensely aware that I did not own that book, mm. that I had written it, but the moment it was published, it was really out of my hands. Yeah, and so that for me, like, you know, you 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 can't be telling people what your book is supposed to be. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, that in many ways it diminishes the power of it. You know what I'm saying? You yeah. know, because it yeah. says you know you're only supposed to see what I see. I don't think I told you this several times. You know, I know you were very respectful and everything, but my whole thing was like, yo, you're not supposed to put the book on the stage. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? you, you always that's said not, that. Yeah, that's not what it is. Uh-huh. You know, you look at the book and you see what you see. Uh huh. What you I see, see your lens. Right, right, right. And you put what you see on the stage. You put your vision, you know, on TV. Yeah. Not, not, not what. Tanahasi would do or what, what he would feel. But not every writer does that, right? I think, I, I know, you know, working, in, you know, and even directing for theater, you know, sometimes, especially with playwrights, they're so, they can be so like, this is my vision, you know, I need to see every word like I've written. And granted, that's a different kind of a form. And, you know, where you're interpreting the writer's words on the stage and you want to be closely tethered, especially for first productions, what they saw when they were writing. But this was so freeing because of that trust. Wait, let me ask you something, though. Let me let me ask you something, because I'm, I'm kind of going yeah. through this right now. So, like, so it's well known in film that ultimately it's the director who really like it's a director's medium. In That's theater, right. is it the director or the, or the screenwriter? It's the writer. Yeah. So like they say, it's like a playwright's medium. Right. And in most in most theater. Right. But, you know, there's some like more experimental theater where, you know, it is sort of the visual director's driving driving force. Um, But especially with new work, it's a playwright. They're running the ship, you know. So this so this collaboration 
was something even for me that was different because, you know, you gave that kind of freedom. I remember I remember I kept trying to say, can, can you look at these pages? Don't you want to read? You want to come to rehearsal? And you were like, you kept saying no. Nah. And I'm like, oh, snap, because you're going to show up and blow the fuck up. No. Like, what did you do to my work? No, it's not mine. I, you know, and I say that all the time. It really it's not mine. It, it's really not mine. I, I did. I had my time. I had my time. My time was when. And and I believe this for all of my work. I mean, I'm going through this, you know, right now, you know, with screenplays and, you know, getting notes back. My time is the time when I'm sitting at the laptop and it's just me. That's yeah. my time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's my private moment with the work, with the material. The moment you decide um, that you want a broader audience to see it, you know, you necessarily invite other people in. To say nothing of having somebody adapted into another form which you have no facility with and no knowledge of how it actually works. I mean, what am I going to tell you about theater? Right, right, right. Like, ultimately, right, like, right. What, what am I going to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can tell you about, you know, writing nonfiction, or at this point, I can tell you about that. You know what I'm saying? But I'm, I don't have the background knowledge to have an art. You got to trust. To be black in the Baltimore of my youth was to be naked before the elements, before all the guns, fists and knives, crack, rape and disease. The nakedness is not an error. The nakedness is the intended result of policy. The system makes your body Breakable. Hello, I am Jerrell Jerome. It is a true honor to be a part of this project because I think in so many ways, Coates has a beautiful way of um, humanizing what we know as history. It's more than a novel. It's more than a set of words. And even this project, it's more than just a, a film. It's life. It's your life. It's my life. And it makes history feel like reality after filming and after watching it and after reading the book all these three different events i always wanted to vent afterwards because i felt so much and especially the the piece that i got to work on it blew me away how that piece was able to paint fear and awe at the same time and i feel like i know that feeling so well because i used to ride the d train home every day from from high school and I'd ride it to the very last stop in the Bronx. I was on 205th Street, so that's the very last stop. And the thing about taking the train to the very last stop is that it's kind of a gamble on who you end up in the cart with by the end, considering how empty it gets. And so um, there would be some late nights I'd be in an empty cart by myself, or I'd be with one other lady, or I'd be with a, a young child and his mom. But then there were those nights where I was like alone with an older group of guys, and naturally, there'd just be these butterflies in my stomach. And sometimes they look over at me. Sometimes I catch them eyeing me and snickering at me when really they probably weren't ever talking about me at all. It just so happens that we're on the same train at this time of night. Um, but there's still this sense of this fear. And my biggest fear growing up was always getting my sneakers robbed. I don't know why. I think just from childhood films and my favorite movies and seeing it in all of my favorite classics, it's just like the biggest fear was what was on my feet and it being taken from me. 
but it's like I'm scared that they're going to take my sneakers, but then I'm looking at their sneakers and they all have better sneakers than I do. <laughs> and, 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 it, and they all look cooler than I do and they're all older than me and they're just free to be roaming in the streets by themselves and no parents with them. And I almost feel jealous of them because I want to be with a group of friends on the train late at night just being cool. So it's like this tear between I'm scared of them, but I'm impressed by them and inspired by them. And that's exactly what that small-eyed boy in the piece was, you know, holding the gun to your face, but not shooting. I focused in on a light-skinned boy with a long head and small eyes. He reached into his ski jacket and pulled out a gun. I saw this surging rage that could in an instant erase my body. It's this sense of I am in so much fear, but I'm amazed at the power that this guy holds over me. And I'm, I'm amazed at the strength he possesses that, and that I don't have. I don't have a gun in his face. I don't have a cool ski jacket on to impress anybody. I just am me. Welcome. I'm Nolika Anderson-Radway, executive producer of HBO's Between the World and Me podcast. And I am overjoyed, blessed, and highly favored <laughs> to be joined by Sonia Renee Taylor, Adrian Marie Brown, and Kimberly Nicole Foster to revel in this amazing work. Um, thank you all for agreeing to be part of this conversation. I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I could say a lot of things. I could say a lot of things, but I love to hear how people choose to let us know who you are. So, Sonia, you want to start? Hi, y'all. I'm Sonia Renee Taylor. <laughs> um, I am the founder and radical executive officer of The Body Is Not an Apology, a digital media and education company exploring the intersection of body, identity, and social justice using the framework of radical self-love. I'm an author. I'm a nosy-ass friend um, and an unapologetic uh, transformationist. My name is Adrienne Marie Brown. I am um, a scholar of miracles and Octavia Butler, and I do most of my work as a writer these days. So I have put out, um, I just put out my fifth little book. Um, I realized that I was like, oh, there was one a long time ago, but Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism, Octavius Brood, and Now We Will Not Cancel Us. Um, and there was one uh, back in the day called How to Get Stupid White Men Out of Office, which I only mentioned because we're in the season. <laughs> and then I'm a podcaster. So I do a podcast with my sister called How to Survive the End of the World. And then I'm doing a podcast with Toshi Regan called Octavia's Parables, which is a deep dive into Octavia Butler's very prophetic and very relevant, timely text. Um, I'm also an auntie. Um, I sing at weddings sometimes. And my work that will probably come out in this conversation some is that I have spent 20 years facilitating Black liberation movements and social justice and environmental justice movements. Um, so, yeah, c'est moi. My name's Kimberly Foster. I like that you added the Nicole in there. I, I, I just added the Nicole because Kimberly Foster was taken on all the social media platforms. But now I like it, right? Like, now <laughs> it's like, oh, like, I'm official. So I love it. Um, I am from Oklahoma, but I live in Dallas now. I'm the founder of For Harriet, which is a Black feminist digital community. 
I'm a writer, a cultural critic. I, at this point, spend most of my time making videos about culture, about media, about feminism, about justice. I'm addicted to reality TV. <laughs> I am obsessed with my nieces. I feel like I'm the world's greatest aunt. Like, we can fight, <laughs> okay? We can fight about yeah, it. Yeah, we can fight. We can fight. We can fight. <laughs> That's a great thing to fight about. <laughs> um, but absolutely, like, they're absolutely, like, the center of my world. Like, nothing brings me more joy than mm. being an other mother, of being an mm. aunt. I love it so much. Yeah, I'm so excited. So, so much joy. I'm This is, like, perfect way to start. Um, something that is a theme of the movie that keeps playing off of is this idea of, like, your 15th year. You know, the book was written to ta wrote it to his son um, in his 15th year, which is such an interesting interesting way of saying like you're 14 years old, but like in your 15th year. And I'm about young people. And <laughs> like, I'm about making sure they are like centered in all the conversations that we're having about liberation. And I'm wondering, what do you remember or who were you in your 15th year? For me, that 15th year was the year when it was like, oh, I'm not actually a kid anymore. Like, I'm not like, I'm not little like, oh, no, you're going to have to put the Barbies away, Sonia. Like it was, and I had a lot of Barbies. And so it was this period of time where I, I really began wanting to know the world, wanting to be out in the world, wanting the world to know me, wanting to understand myself in the dynamics of relationship. Um, it was my 15th birthday party where my best friend, she invited like all of her ninth grade class to my house for the party, but it wasn't a party. It was just supposed to be a slumber party for me and four girls. But then like 10 dudes showed up on our porch. Uh, and I was like, what am I supposed to do with all these? And then I was like, well, I wow. guess it's a house party now. Uh, <laughs> and that turned into a whole ass house party. Um, and then a month later, oh, I yeah. totally got caught. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was a wrap for me for many months. It was a wrap. But what was so amazing about that time was like, I'm outside of this sort of bubble of childhood and I am inside of really understanding myself inside the world, understanding myself in the context of a larger dynamic. Right. Um, and, and so inside of the film was like, right. It felt so marked, markedly clear that it was like the end of innocence, right? Like I'm talking to you at the end of your innocence. Right. And that's, and and unfortunately for for black kids, you know, it happens often so abruptly that end of innocence. You know, um, yeah. Then my fifteenth year is also the year my cousin got murdered, and so um, yeah, I re I remember that just being, you know, and he was sixteen, and and I remember that being like, right, this is when we, this is when the world, real world, shows up, you know. Mm. Well, first of all, thank you, Sonia, for that. Yeah. Um, your memory lane. Mm -hmm. And um, my 15th year, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, attending the High School of the Performing Arts. And so, you know, I was light skinned, I had curly hair. Jasmine Guy had gone to that high school and then gone on to be like a different world and everything. So it was like, um, you know, I was tap dancing and I was wearing fishnets and like leotards and feathers. And like, I was really living into my performer self. 
And I was moving through all the awkwardness of landing, like being in Georgia, which was, I had been raised in a military household. We had moved and moved and moved and moved. And almost every place that we lived was a military base where all the kids were black and white mixed or black and Japanese mixed or um, of color, <laughs> like something. And so to land in Georgia was a cultural shock because there were there was a lot of like, here's what race looks like here. And where do you fit into this? Do you understand how to move through this space? And I was like, not really, <laughs> you know, like I'm moving through, I'm being myself. And, um, and I ended up finding a crew of other kids who were either multiracial or black, and we would hang together and sing together and create culture together. And we were all odd, you know, now I look back and I'm like, oh, like I've always been the same kind of black quirky geek person. But at the time I didn't have any language for it. I was just like, I don't know, I'm just a little different in some way. And that was also when, now I look back, you know, the Me Too movement, I think gave a lot of people a new framework on their own histories. But I look back and I'm like, oh, also I experienced a multitude of sexual assaults in that period of time. And I didn't understand what was happening, but I knew that I was losing a sense of confidence over my boundaries and my body. And, um, I was very unclear on what desirability was or meant. And at the end of that year, I was, I had gotten into a camp where um, it was a tap dancing camp and Gregory Hines was going to be the tap dancing teacher. And it was like a big deal. And I had made it through the year. And then my parents were like, we got assigned to go to Germany and we're leaving like in two weeks or something. You're not going to be able to go to camp or whatever. And so it was this mm. year, you know, for me, I was just like, <sighs> my musical career is over. I'm lost inside my body. I have no idea how to relate to sex or sexuality or other people. And now I'm, I'm having to leave this place and go to a place that doesn't even have a music program. How am I going to survive? That was my 15th year. Yeah. What I remember most about being 15 was feeling trapped. Trapped in white suburbia. In my home, I felt like mm. nobody understood me. Mm. Even outside of my home, I felt like nobody understood me or really saw me. And the only thing yeah. I really cared about at that time was escaping. And mm. I knew that I can't play sports, okay? Like, it wasn't going to be no sports scholarship. The only way <laughs> that, that I was going to get out was via academics. And so I put everything into achievement. Achievement was the center of my joy. My entire identity was about being the best and being on top. And now that I'm an adult, I realize that's unsustainable. But at that time, that was it for me. And I also mm -hmm. grew up with baby boomer parents who definitely gave me the, okay, we live here, but you can't do what they do. Definitely, I definitely got the, yeah. the yeah. twice as good messaging. Mm. We work hard mm. messaging. And so I was mm. completely preoccupied with that. I didn't know who I was outside of the awards. I didn't know who I was outside of the grades. But this is so interesting that y'all talk about performing arts high school because I didn't go to a performing arts high school, but performing was the only outlet. That was the only true, my only true passion. Wow. So mm. I did plays and musicals. I could sing a little bit, just a little. Mm. I can, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Okay. We need to make a little bit chorus. <laughs> <laughs> and so... 
when I was on stage, when I was performing, that was the time when I truly felt seen. That was the time when I truly felt valuable outside of how proud I was making my mom because I was at the top of the class. Yeah, all of what you all said and what I thought about, like where you landed us, is this idea that you're going through all of these things that you just described and so the multitudes of more, right? Like the, the all of the coming age, all of the being in your 15 year. And as a black child, for so many, they're hit with the reality of their lived experience um, and the violence against black bodies. And I'm wondering in the... Um, film, there's like this whole monologue, like when Jarell Jerome, um, who's an amazing actor, um, the monologue he does, he speaks about his body and being a young person and how vulnerable he feels. And also like looking at these other Black bodies and not knowing how to engage with them. Totally. So the messaging that I was getting at that time was... We live in this community, an ostensibly safe community, but it's you don't have the same kind of safety because I was a little Black girl. And then there's another kind of violence that comes from being a quote-unquote high-achieving little Black girl where there's like a, a kind of res- like racial resentment that comes. And so I was definitely the target of some of that and I could never understand it because it's like, I'm just doing this for me. Like, I'm not trying to do nothing to y'all. Um, but as much as my parents said, there are things that you won't experience because we live in this community, you are still vulnerable and you still need to be cognizant and conscious about the racial dynamics of this country. And the racial dynamics, honestly, of growing up in Oklahoma and Texas was like, it's a whole nother thing. But I just knew, I mean, I was just so, so singularly focused on trying to find a way to be honest about who I was, to be able to explore the fullness of my identity and like my ideas. I was just like, okay, well, I almost felt like there's a line in this film where this is something about being a prison, like blackness is a prison, something about that. And I was, and I really felt caged. I really felt caged at that time. And like, I was like counting down the days, like Shawshank Redemption. Um, Like, it was like so, so serious and so urgent. So something that I did appreciate about this book and the performances in this film was the urgency is so palpable. You can feel it in the pacing of the film. You can feel it in the performances. And that is the sense of urgency that I felt when I was a teenager. When I first, when I first read the book, what I said was Ta-Nehisi Coates has written the treatise on body terrorism for Black body, right? Like that's what I immediately felt. felt. Uh, inside of our work, we talk about body terrorism as the systemic and structural elements um, that, that make it, you know, not only dangerous, but often deadly to be inside of a body. And I was like, if ever, you know, and this film does such a beautiful job of, of laying out the tension and the fear, right? I think there's there's such a story inside of the narrative of America that Black bodies don't feel anything, right? That we don't feel pain, that we don't feel fear, that we don't, you know, this, you know, even an entire 
medical students trained to think that Black people don't feel pain in the same way that white bodies do, right? And so what I thought was so brilliant and so powerful in this is that there was this real clear connection to the fear, right? To the fear and the pain that living in the circumstances of a white supremacist America and its delusions um, and its impact on our bodies, what that does to us, right? And, and that that fear... That fear starts so young. It's such an early indoctrination. And, and also because we're constantly, you know, told to disavow fear and constantly told that like whatever we're feeling is made up or we're foolish for having it. Then there's this, this stuffing, you know, this stuffing of the fear that I believe is that, you know, is that part in, in Jarrell's monologue where it's like, right, these, the knives and the crack and the guns and the rape and the, and it's like, right. Cause that is, that is the, that is the manifestation of the fear. That's what, that is what that kind of psychological terror creates, right? Is it create, it needs an outlet and inside of a world that does not give black people sanctuary, right? For the harm and sanctuary for the trauma. There are so many other ways in which that fear must become manifest. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's so not just like some outside story. You know, my, my mother, um, my, my mother struggled with a crack addiction for the entirety of my childhood. And I was always very clear inside of my little black girl body that what I was watching was what the world did to this black woman. I was never, I was at eight years old. I wasn't confused about why my mother was struggling in the way that she was, you know? And I too uh -huh. come from a military. Yep. Same. Adrian, we just had the same childhood. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's, um, you know, so moving around and, and having this interesting dichotomy between structure from a, you know, a father who's in the military and a mother who is living, you know, living in this, addiction that is so this addiction that is blackness in the 80s and 90s that's you can't talk about crack addiction without talking about blackness in the 80s and 90s and the duality of those worlds and I was very clear and it came across so astutely in the film the duality of those worlds right the struggle to get out the struggle to get out and all the things that want to keep you inside of that system of bodily terror I knew there was this other world that was suburban and endless, organized around pot roast, pies, sundaes, and small toy trucks loosed in wooded backyards. I have seen that dream all my life. It is perfect houses with perfect lawns, Memorial Day cookouts and driveways, tree houses, and Cub Scouts dream. Smells like peppermint, but tastes like strawberry shortcake. The dream seemed to be the pinnacle, to grow rich and live in one of those disconnected houses out in the country, in one of those small communities, one of those cul-de-sacs with its gently curving ways, where they staged teen movies and built tree houses 
and in that last lost year before college, teenagers made love in cars parked by the lake. The dream seemed to be the end of the world for me, the height of American ambition. What more could possibly exist beyond the dispatches, beyond the suburbs? For so long, I've wanted to escape into the dream, to fold my country over my head like a blanket. But this has never been an option because the dream rests on our backs, the bedding made from our bodies. And knowing this, knowing that the dream persists by warring with the known world, I was sad for my country. But above all, in that moment, I was sad for you. Something that in the film that was like a surprise, but really um, took me back was all of the clips from like those sitcoms and TV shows that I didn't even consciously realize I was ingesting. This is what it is to be American. This is the dream. This is like what I, and I was like, I, I lived on all those shows. I like, I like, I watched them. All the time. At nauseum, all the time. All the time. And it was such a violent thing because it was like, this is the American dream, but it's completely unattainable to you. But you can see that other people are living it and even black people are living it, but not you, but it's for TV. It's like for television, it's for Hollywood. And I love, I think Angela Bassett was the one who comes in with that, you know, just like really making it plain how violent it is to create a circumstance in which whatever the dream of society is, is completely unattainable to the majority of the people and particularly to the people who have, who never chose to be there. Right. So it's like, you didn't choose to be here, but we're trying to sell you a dream that you can never achieve. And even people who think they've achieved it, who break through and have some wealth, right. Which is really the, the way that people, Oh, now I've got it. Even those people get, turned away at the door of department stores. And even those people get followed down the street. And even those people get stopped by the police. Even those people are terrified on a regular basis of what's going to happen to their children as soon as they're out of their view. There's no, there's no attaining, uh, you know, the safety component of the dream. So I really thought that piece, that question that was in that section where it was like, what is there to fight for childhood? Like if, if the dream was instead that every child can be safe and that every child can feel abundance, that every child can have what they need what would it look like if that was the dream and that was something that we were trying to attain as opposed to endless exorbitant wealth and which can only come from ownership and corruption. You know, I was going to I was going to say that that section really really struck me cuz I so appreciated laying bare the lies and the myths of meritocracy because if you're a black person in this country, you are told over mm-hmm. and over again that if you suffer, it's your fault. You should have tried harder. You should have been more exceptional. You should have made more money. And even mm-hmm. if you make more money, even if you try hard, even if you are the quote unquote best, you are still going to be subject to, to violence. Your body is still going to be yes. vulnerable. You are still going to be mm-hmm. beaten down mentally, emotionally, psychically. And so I so appreciated this idea that there, there's nothing that you can do to escape it. And there are still people, yes, Black folks in this yeah. country, yeah. who are still yeah. buying yes. into those lies and trying to sell the rest of us those lies. 
And it's like, give it up. And I yeah. go, you got to give it up. Okay. Cause, cause you are, right. you're, you're opting into suffering. You don't have to live like that. You know? Yes. Yes. It's heartbreaking. Yes. Yes. And not only that, you have to suffer or you have to, you have to sign on to someone else suffering and you're, you have to make sure you're replaced. So if you're not going to be the enslaved person, then some immigrant is going to be in that person or someone else is going to have to be in that place. But that is the requirement is you have to be willing to let someone else work till their hands are bleeding as your grand, great grandparents did, which that's the other part of it. That's, that's so sickening to me is it's just like, uh, and I think it's so important that work like this comes out on a regular basis to just as a reminding, you know, it's just like, hold on, because as people try to rush us along to post-racialism, hold on, we have not dealt with any of the superstructures of this condition. The superstructure is black suffering is what the country was built on. And there's never been any accountability for that. The superstructure is it continues every day every single day. And I think it's such a powerful thing that the age of 15, you know, that, that piece where I'm like, I know, and I've seen so many people respond like, oh, I can't imagine having to have that talk with my kid at that age. And I'm like, those are not black people saying that, <laughs> right? And it's like for black people by that age, something has already taken place. They've already seen the killing. Now it's much younger, you know, like I think because of the way the internet works and because there's, you can't protect children from the news. So I'm, I'm like now my nibblings who are, you know, seven, eight years old are like, I understand what's going on. Like I see parents having to talk with their kids who are four and five years old. Well, here's why, why people are in the streets right now. So I'm mean, like, in some ways, this, the quicker we can dash the dream and actually create a different set of longings for our children the better we are setting them up to actually move through this world towards something that is liberating versus something that is a heartbreaking, suffering embarrassment. See, I was a curious child, but the schools were not concerned with curiosity. They were concerned with compliance. Every February, my classmates and I were herded into assemblies for a ritual review of the civil rights movement. Our teachers urged us towards the example of freedom marchers, freedom riders, and freedom summers. The month could not pass without a series of films dedicated to the glories of being beaten on camera. The fire hoses that tore off their clothes and tumbled them into the streets. They seem to love the dogs that tear their children apart. The tear gas that clawed at their lungs, they seem to love those terrorists. The world had no time for the childhoods of black boys and girls. I sensed the schools were drugging us with false morality. Why were only our heroes nonviolent? Why are they showing this to us? Why are they showing this to us? What I did know at 15 was that I knew some shit, right? What I did know at 15 was that I wasn't clueless out, you know, like, because you don't have the option to be clueless as a Black kid. It's not an it's there's no luxury in sort of obliviousness. And so there was, you know, my, my mother used to say, you better act like you know that you know that you know. 
<laughs> and I was like, there's so many no's in that, mom. Like, <laughs> And what I got was, you know, like, and I was a know-it-all kid. Like, that was just like my, my shtick. Um, it's like, whatever, whatever question you had, I had an answer. Right, wrong, and different. I was going to make some shit up if I needed to. Uh, <laughs> It took me a long time to grow out of that shit. It took me a real long time. Uh, I'm still working on it sometimes. Um, true. Uh, but, but what I, but what I knew then that I am coming back to knowing today is you, you not, you're not making it up, Sonia. You know some things. You know some things. And what does it look like to trust your knowing? What does it look like to feel that whatever that is, that internal mechanism that is like, mm, you know this, or mm, you know, nope, whatever that is, right? What is it? What is it to return to listening to that and trusting its guidance um, in my life again? And so that to me has been one of the most powerful things is like, you know, you knew then and you know now, and don't let nobody tell you different. Yeah, I so relate to Sonia saying that she was a know-it-all because I was the biggest know-it-all when I was a kid and like an asshole about it. Just like loud and like <laughs> like arrogant about it. But I will say that what I knew then that I still know now is that most of the people who were in charge had no business being in charge. Mm-hmm. I knew then, mm-hmm. <laughs> why am I listening to you? You don't know nothing. What you're saying to me is wrong. <laughs> And the expectation of deference is absurd. The idea that I shouldn't be able to ask questions to poke holes in your arguments, that's ridiculous. They were wrong then and they're wrong now. And as an adult, particularly when it comes to my family and their wrongness, because of the work that I've done, I can now forgive them for being wrong. I can say, I understand why you were so wrong and why you were so stubborn in your wrongness, but you were still wrong. And we're going to talk about it, okay? <laughs> because that wrongness has consequences. And obviously, we can come back together and we can reconcile. And I understand that your wrongness, I'm talking about my family here, their wrongness was often a response to the wrongness of the world. Like, they were just reacting. They were trying to keep themselves safe. They were trying to keep their children safe. Dear Sekami, for so long, in fact, all my life, I I wasn't sure about something. I wasn't sure that I would would ever be a father. father. It's not that I didn't want to find a fantastic partner who would bring you forth and help me raise you. And it's not that I saw myself living a life without a child like some others do, for I really wanted to have you in my life. I wasn't sure I would ever be a father because the world I came from didn't seem to want me to be a father to you or to anyone. I grew up in America with its traps shaped perfectly to capture and end my brown body. America seemed to want to cut me down before I could even get started, to force drought on my tears before I even had a chance to smile until my cheeks ached or laugh from the very bottom of my belly. America with its rules designed for me to lose no matter how I played its game showed me time and time again that I didn't even belong on the playing field. Year after year, I became less sure that I could ever be a strong and confident father to a beautiful child because the books American schools gave me didn't tell me that story. They told me a different story of pain, struggle, and only failure. 
a failure hundreds of years old stained on the skin of our people, threatening to never fade. A failure that told me I didn't deserve to have you in my life. But you know what, my love? Because of America and despite America, your mother and I found each other and were blessed with something bigger than either of us individually. Out of the ether of the universe and from the ancestors, you found us. <laughs> for the past nine years and for as long as I have breath in my body, please know that being your father is a gift and a treasure. Because of and despite everything, you are treasure. Above even that truth, you, Sekani, are your own endless pile of gold and all things priceless. Treasure. There are barren places and frigid people on our world who will not accept the magnificent light you have inside of you, a light that you brought here to share with us. There are those who will try to convince you that joyful imagination and boundless invention are not your playthings. But Sekani, because of them and despite them, when you want to, laugh and let it bubble, bounce on its swirling rainbow surface. When you need to, cry and let it flow. Ride those rivers that rush through and land you on new shores each time. And be fair to yourself. When you can't anymore, don't and let it rest. There's always tomorrow's canvas ready for your new explorations. You deserve it. Touch it, shape it, mold it, squeeze it, smooth it, search it, and live your best life for as long as you can. There may be days when it seems like the world itself is trying to slip from your grip, threatening to shatter on the ground. So toss it, juggle it, flip it, and trick it. Perch it on the tip of your index finger and balance it in front of your face. Pop it up in the air, spin yourself all the way around with flair and style. Come what may, you have everything you need. My great-grandparents, who are your great-great-grandparents, made sure of that. And their grandparents made sure because of and despite everything, that they would have what they needed. This is your planet Earth, Seikani. Our ancestors decided long ago that the world would be our inheritance, our grands, great-grands, and great-great-grands before them. When we found out that your mother would give birth to you, I rushed to soak up as many things that I thought I would have to teach you to prepare you for life. It's hard to express what I felt when I first saw your face your hands and your feet and hair, and heard the sound of your voice and your breath. In that instant, you taught me more than one million books ever could. You connected me to the universe and to the gift left by our ancestors. In the In instant, instant, you filled, you filled me, me with, with joyful, joyful imagination, imagination inspired me towards boundless invention, and gave me the key to this world. I love you. I love you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of HBO's Between the World and Me podcast. I'd like to thank all the guests we heard from today. Jarell Jerome, Adrian Marie Brown, Kimberly Nicole Foster, and Sonia Renee Taylor, as well as ta Coates and Camila Forbes, whose work is the reason we're here today. And an extra special thanks to Kaid and Sekani Jacobs, the father and son featured in this episode. Next week, the conversation continues. Join us again next Monday for episode two, The Mecca. 
HBO's Between the World and Me podcast is hosted by me, Susan Kelechi Watson, and produced by HBO in conjunction with Spoke Media and Domino Sound. Our executive producers are Elisa Payne, Nolika Radway, Keith Reynolds, Aliyah Tavakolian, and Brigham Mosley. Creative director is Kenya Denise, and senior producer is Alexandra De Palma. Caroline Hamilton produces the show with help from Goldie Patrick, Trey Jones, Alicia Force, and Carson McCain. Sound design and engineering by Evan Arnett, with original music from the film by Jason Moran. Our theme song is by Cone. If you like what you heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream the podcast on HBO Max. Thanks for listening.